Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined by Rhea Mira, who is the VP of product at Aporia, a leading AI performance and observability platform. Previously, he served as head of product at Arise AI, led some product initiatives centered around foundational language models and graph-based ML at Google AI, and played a pivotal role in the development of natural language models across a bunch of different industry applications at IBM Watson. So Rhea is an alumnus of UC Berkeley Electrical Engineering and Computer Science class of 2020 or of 2014. Welcome to the show today, Rhea. Thanks so much for having me, Jaden. How's it going? I am doing fantastic. You're calling in from Tel Aviv. That's exciting. A majority of our guests are uh, from the United States, so it's always nice to have people, you know, calling in from from other places. Tell us a little bit about your. Um, I'd just be curious, like. Tell me a little bit about your background. Um, so you're in Tel Aviv now. Are you are you originally from Tel Aviv? Um, what got you interested in AI and and kind of this whole space? Yeah. Um, so I was actually born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Um, okay. So the Tel Aviv move was actually pretty pretty spontaneous and as recent as a year ago. Um, oh, okay. But nice. Yeah. Born and raised in LA in the San Fernando Valley, uh, went to Berkeley for university. And then right after Berkeley, um, I actually moved to New York City. And okay. um, kind of all throughout, I, I started as a software engineer. I My first kind of stint was at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, working on the okay. Mars Curiosity rover. And then kind of quickly after... Um, through a number of uh, academic courses, which I took, um, you know, building AI adversarial Pac-Man agents and such, I became interested in making computers think, act, and behave like humans. And that kind of led me into, you know, machine learning and AI, and um, it escalated fairly quickly. Very cool. So, you know, you said your first stint, you're working at NASA, super interesting. Then you go over to Google. How long were you at Google? And I guess what was what were some of the, the things that you're working on over there? Yeah, so I, I was actually at uh, IBM's uh, Watson Group before Google, but I was at Google oh, right. about, I was uh, in Google's research and machine intelligence division for about three years. Um, okay. I worked on a team that, that was focused on a number of different uh, graph convolutional networks or graph-based ML algorithms. And mm-hmm. what that means is it's it's really the core of uh it's it's a uh core technology that can be used to power different applications from things like YouTube's watch next recommendation algorithm all the way to okay. fighting uh abuse across uh Gmail or um you know determining what's NSFW content across search, uh, so on and so forth. It's pretty widely applicable. And actually, some of these algorithms even made it as far as uh, broader alphabet. So within Waymo's autonomous driving division and uh, oh, wow. and Verily, which is kind of alphabet's um, healthcare and sciences department um, for for different drug synthesis and cancer diagnosis. So it's um, it's really kind of like the foundational layer on top of which you can build different applications. Very, very interesting. That's super cool. Um, And then my other question would be, 
to yeah tell us a little bit about what you're doing over at um ibm with watson it's kind of interesting because right now right we see like ibm really with watson and google being two of these major like powerhouses when it comes to ai and, and the products they're putting out um you know and we've seen a little bit about ibm and watson kind of in the news i hear a lot more about google i feel like and everything they're integrating maybe that's just that more brand recognition but tell everyone a little bit about ibm and watson and, and yeah what you're doing there yeah so um you know most people know ibm for uh kind of being a pioneer in ai building you know this this chess chess bot that beat Car- gary kasparov <laughs> and then you know subsequently uh beat ken jennings in in jeopardy um yeah but uh, what, what I was actually working on was uh, natural language models. So, you know, everyone's familiar with the large language model hype in present day. Um, I was working on much smaller and more fine-tuned models for specific uh, use cases. And, you know, one of the more lucrative industries for a company that's generally B2B like IBM uh, was hmm. actually legal and compliance. So, Oh, interesting. So, you know, what might generally take a lawyer or a paralegal or a compliance officer um, hours, if not, you know, hours on end or, or perhaps even days, depending on the contract. Um, the The objective was, could you use a language model to extract um, firm-specific uh, uh, language? In other words, the redlining that lawyers do, right? Uh-huh. Can you get a, a machine learning model to do just that? Extract things like parties buyer supplier mm. um differentiate between uh topics so obligations rights exclusions disclaimers all, all these different uh you know very niche entities and both syntactically and semantically and the reason that's mm-hmm. important because um you know we'll, we'll we might talk t- we might touch on the topic of hallucinations but when it comes down to legal language the difference between a multi-million dollar lawsuit and, you know, a bulletproof contract can be as minute as an Oxford comma. So, uh, you know, these models had to be extremely precise. Okay. Yeah, that's that uh, That sounds like the precision is uh, really important. And I'm sure this is brings you a little bit to what you're doing today. One other question, though, I'm curious about this is what kind of made you ship from IBM to Google? What was, what was that transition like? What was, you know, were you just seeing new opportunities or... What was that? Uh, what was that move for? Yeah, um, you know, I guess for me it was uh, a similar tenure at IBM's Watson Group. I was there for approximately three years. I actually kind of formally made the switch from um, uh, software engineering to product management, and and uh, you know, really sat at that intersection of, of the business and the technology, and um, uh, had a great time at IBM. Nonetheless, it's a hundred-year-old company, and Google seemed a bit uh, more lean and agile. Okay, so I feel like I'm seeing this really interesting trend from you, right? You're starting at NASA, so government. Uh, then you go to IBM, hundred-year-old company. Then you're going to Google, a little bit more lean, and then you decide to make the move to uh, Aporia. Which, um, yeah, what, what was your what was your thinking there? This is obviously a new startup. It's a lot less secure than a big, huge company like Google. What was the what was your thinking in that? Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, going from big corporations where you know oftentimes you you, you can get a sense of you know a, a feeling of of lost or you know being a, a 
not driving enough impact as quickly as you'd like to. Um, I have a very extreme personality. If I kind of go for something, it's, it's 110%. And so, you know, I felt like I, uh, built a, a breadth and depth across my, my technical skill set as well as my product expertise. And, um, I made plenty of errors along the way. Uh, and, and, and the beauty of working at a large corporation is that, you know, they generally have the resources for you to make those mistakes. Um, right. You know, you, you screw up an experiment or perhaps take a little longer to, to push something to production. Google's not going to, you know, go under. However, uh, uh-huh. once you build that confidence, I think jumping into the, the world of startups and particularly, you know, in Tel Aviv and, and Israel, which is a startup nation, I mean, you, you kind of really put your skill set and your experience to the test. Um, very frugal in terms of resources, very agile in terms of, you know, the the timeline and features that you need to deliver and customers you've made promises to and and so on and so forth. That's yeah, I, I totally see that. And uh, personally, I'm, I'm working on startups. I love startups. It's what I'm all about, too. So um, definitely an exciting but different. Uh, I previously also worked at a 100 year old company, so definitely very different. Um, I want to get into what you guys are building at Aporia, but I had one other question before that, which is, um, right, you mentioned born and raised in California, moved to Tel Aviv. Was that for Aporia or did you move there first and find them after? Like, what was that? What was that? What did that look like for you? Yeah, great question. Um, so my, my parents were actually born and raised in, in Israel, not okay. not in the center of Tel Aviv, but uh, a little north. And okay. um for me, I, I kind of grew up visiting the country and was always kind of in awe of the number of startups and just the innovation that came out of you know a country the size of New Jersey. And uh, totally, you know, when whenever I would come and visit, I was kind of immersed and baffled at the same time. While I was at Google, I would make several trips here for work. Um, you know, the Tel Aviv office is is one of the leaders in terms of AI and and uh, innovation. And so for me, it was a combination of uh, both personal exploration as well as professional development. Okay. So you moved and then you just, you found Eporia after that while you were living there? Yes. Okay. Very cool. Super cool. Um, and I think, honestly, I think that's a really interesting story for a lot of people listening, right? Like find the place you want to go and you'll find an amazing company to work. Uh, you don't just have to live exactly you know where you may perhaps have a job today or whatnot so very cool story um tell us a little bit about eporia and the and the uh you know the problems you guys are currently solving for customers i would be happy to i guess you know one thing that really led me here was the fact that while being at these major corporations with kind of leading ai and ml organizations um i kind of saw the same challenges over and over again, largely unsolved, um, okay. despite the resources, despite the team size, and even the the success of the models. Um, okay. The traditional machine learning lifecycle, uh, you know, starts at first off identifying the objective of what you want your model to do, and then um, going from kind of data collection and cleansing to feature engineering to training your model. Uh, it running different experiments but once you launch that model 
into production. In other words, the real world. It is right. very difficult to gauge its performance. And furthermore, to know, you know, when something goes wrong, how to fix it. And um, that's exactly what perf- uh, Aporia is is doing right now. We are kind of a use case agnostic AI performance and observability platform. Now that's a mouthful, so I'll, I'll kind of break it down into maybe a few pillars. Um, you're an organization, you've got machine learning models. These models are not for the sake of you know saying your company does AI. They actually affect core business metrics or KPIs, right? So mm-hmm. a common example is you know you're at um, your favorite tech store, brick and mortar, or you know maybe you're even ordering from Amazon, but the you know you've been saving up and and you transact on something that's maybe uh, higher than your usual spend, and you get that text message we are all familiar with. You know, is this really you or is this fraud? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a machine learning model, right? And so um, the the number of the uh, what Aporia does is we actually allow you to. Um, upload different models into uh, your own data lake or where or warehouse, and and we connect directly to that, and uh, we empower kind of I want to say three and soon to be four pillars. The first is, is mm-hmm. centralized visibility, so a single kind of uh, bird's eye or centralized view of your models, their activity, performance their overall health in terms of data quality, um, drift, and any other issues that you might encounter. Um, the reason I mentioned that, you know, the example fraud use case is because um, yeah. for a big bank or, you know, a credit card company, those types of um, models make very powerful business decisions, whether to allow a, a transaction and if it's a false negative, in other words, if it's a fraudulent transaction that's that goes under the, under the radar, that's a chargeback or a loss for the company. So mm. what Aporia does, or its second pillar, is proactive monitoring. You want to be alerted okay. when something goes wrong with your model before that downstream business KPI is affected, right? So yeah. if, for example, you know, you're seeing a spike in false negative fraud transactions. People are calling in and saying, hey, charge back my credit card. That was a B, right? You want to be proactively alerted before, you know, that that drift or that, yeah. you know, we, we, we call drift kind of like a slow bleeding failure, change over time, um, you know, before it really affects your, your business. So that's the second pillar, which is monitoring. The okay. third pillar that Aporia offers is, is root cause analysis, or in other words, the why, right? So monitoring kind of gives you what happened. Hey, you're experiencing this performance degradation. You're experiencing this drift. There might be a data quality issue, but why or the root cause analysis allows you to quickly discover, um, you know, what is the reason that it happened and gives you insights or actionable recommendations on how to fix those um, issues in production. Um, Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of pause there because that was a, a bit of a rant, but we're, we're actually working on um, some fairly new features for for the large language model space and you know the hype that that the world is seeing um, as we speak today. 
Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, that sounds like some really fascinating stuff you're working on. And I see some serious value, especially for for the enterprise. Um, but, you know, what you're kind of alluding to there is what I'd be interested in in asking is kind of like, so you guys have these really this these kind of pillars that you you have in Aphoria that it currently does. What are some of the exciting things you guys are are planning on or, you know, you see a need for in the future? So you're building today. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the natural kind of course of the conversation, you know, leads us to the widespread application uh, applications built on top of large language models. And yeah. with the um, with the you know movement of open source models and open source data sets and um, you know kind of pre-trained off the shelf models that you can you can use. I mean, you you no longer need to be a data scientist to leverage ML models, right? Mm-hmm. Any software engineer or even you know homegrown coder can go ahead and yeah. pick up an off the shelf model and you know bang away at the keyboard and, and call the API and get some pretty fascinating results, whether it's sentiment analysis or, or knowledge answering or, or question answering. Now, the the challenges come when you're, again, building kind of a, a real-world application. You trust this large language model built on 500 billion parameters, you know, wh- whatever the, the GPT-7 will be, right? Like, You've got uh-huh, models yeah. that are built that, that are built on hundreds of billions of parameters. In the future, we might see trillions of parameters, right? And mm-hmm. um, you know, infamously, it's it's very difficult to understand why your model acted in the way that it did. What led yeah. to this prediction, right? Whether it's a hallucination or whether it's confident, and yeah. Um, you know, for for that reason, this this concept of AI guardrails, which which we're working on, um, and 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 really building out in a sophisticated way, is is something I'm really excited about. Being able to uh, detect and prevent AI hallucinations in a continuous and iterative fashion, so that you know these these types of blunders, right and there are real world examples. This isn't kind of like a, a, a made up challenge, right? During the yeah. release of Google's Bard, what happened was, uh, you know, Sundar hopped on stage and actually, you know, flaunted Bard during this launch, and it it made a blunder. I mean, I think it was the the Hubble telescope. It, it kind of like launched yeah. that, and and Google's stock plummeted, right? And so yeah, so hundred billion dollars, a hundred billion dollars lost in <laughs> in a snap. So. Um, how how do you detect these types of hallucinations? How do you mitigate these challenges? And furthermore, you know, how do you prevent them going forward? How do you continuously monitor uh, and and develop a feedback loop to that, that's crucial in identifying these types of of issues? Yeah. So I mean, that's my question. Like, how how do you do that? How do you you know prevent these hallucinations? Obviously, this is a big issue. Hundred billions of dollars on the line. I mean. A side note, that's kind of, I feel like that's Google's fault because they had like a, they, they should have had like, it was literally their marketing team should have just fact checked the slides they had up. But you know, that that's another problem. But yeah, like, how do you, how do you fix this? This is a big, a big problem, especially for, you know, the end consumer that uses ChatGPT for small projects, not a big deal. They'll fact check it, they'll figure it out. But the real big problem is corporations and the enterprise, like they can't have these mistakes, right? This is incredibly important to them. So, so yeah, that's the question. Like, how do you, how do you stop that? 
Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's a very loaded question. Um, and I'll, I'll do my best to kind of gloss over some of the, the methods that, that we're using and building out in, in a way that I can elaborate on. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are generally kind of three ways of evaluating a large language model application or, or, or an application built on any sort of, of language model. The first are a series of task-based metrics. So, okay. um, you know, for those who are interested, there's um, a Stanford paper called HELM, which stands for Holistic Evaluation of Language Models. And there you can kind of see, I don't know, like 50 plus different LLM models evaluated across a number of different scenarios, as well as, um, you know, different metrics, whether it's um, exact match or quasi-exact match, et cetera. So depending on the task, there are metrics that we as, uh, you know, a, a species of data scientists and statisticians have developed to measure accuracy, precision, recall, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of the, the first uh, method. Now, the, the second method actually falls on user feedback. So you may have seen or not seen, you know, some, some degree of, um, you know, in, in chat GPT on OpenAI's site, right? You got the, the thumbs up or thumbs down or, you know, rate yeah. this response or which yeah. response mm -hmm. is better. Um, so what you're actually doing is, is you are a human reinforcement kind of feedback that's helping um, helping fine tune that model. And so um, being able to leverage a combination of task-based metrics as well as user feedback, um, generally segmented by uh, you know different features or or some sort of segmentation, you can go ahead and um, make educated educated, uh, guesses as to the probability of a response being um, relevant, being truthful, being harmful, being uh, a hallucination, um, and so on and so forth. And actually, maybe the, the third and perhaps most interesting but controversial method is actually having an LLM evaluate an LLM, um, mm. which, which, is, which is interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you've got um, maybe, you know, again, I'll, I'll just kind of throw 500 billion parameter model that's yeah. spewing uh, questions and responses to everything from, you know, summarize this article to, um, you know, narrate this show in Shakespearean language, right? And, and, right. and you know, your job is to, to really detect those types of topics and Again, it's it's bias or toxicity or hallucinations, etc. And um, there's kind of this novel uh, uh, movement of using smaller, more fine-tuned models to mm -hmm. evaluate their responses. And they're actually language models themselves, which is mm -hmm. you know trying to like you know solve a problem with the root of what's causing the problem <laughs> in and of itself. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'll, I'll kind of pause there and. Um, get your thoughts on it what yeah well I, I was just gonna say like so obviously um you, know, you mentioned it's kind of controversial using a, an ai model to evaluate an ai model 
like why do you what do you, i guess what's the core of the controversy there like why do you think it is the most controversial why do you think people have like an aversion to that like because theoretically it's like oh it's one tool making another tool better this tool was specifically designed to do this what do you think people are really concerned about here i you know i, I think this the the concerns around uh ai and and their um you know essentially the transparency of their predictions ultimately falls under the training data itself right because mm -hmm. your models will only ever be as good and as diverse as your training data which you hope is representative of real world scenarios that your model will, will encounter um mm -hmm. and so um you know th there there's this concept of not just uh measuring the output of a model through its predictions mm -hmm. and through um you know some degree of of a performance metric measurement meaning you know maybe you have uh, a sample of your data or your model's predictions actually being vetted by humans and evaluated by humans but there is mm -hmm. also um a a degree of um i guess what we we'd call like uh auditing that's that's very important along the way yeah right? so like Okay. It actually starts yeah. from the data you've collected. Um, who and how was it labeled? Is it representative? Is it diverse? Does it um, does it implicitly um, mitigate against bias? Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's the feedback that you're co collecting even biased, right? Are are all the users mm -hmm. that you're using to evaluate from the same group or segment or even geographical location? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, it falls under these kind of responsible AI principles, which I think are, uh, you know, it, it itself, uh, it's, a, it's a huge rabbit hole and it's extremely important, but it's, it's um, something that, you know, big and small and, and every type of organization or every size of, of in between, you know, organizations are trying to solve this. Um, and at the end of the day, the the end users they uphold us whether it's Aporia or or Google Bard or, or ChatGPT and OpenAI up uphold you know these models to a high standard of of excellence, um, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, I think you know it's one of the more exciting areas of research and development today. Totally, very very interesting. Well, Rhea, this has been absolutely uh, fascinating to to kind of hear your opinions and pick your brain and see what you guys are building right there. Um, it, absolutely, there's some big like issues and things we're still grappling with in AI, um, but it's been amazing to have you on the show. I'm wondering, um, you know, before we wrap this up, I'm wondering if you have a piece of advice that you could give to um, perhaps software developers or other people implementing AI into their companies right now. Uh, what's what's a piece of advice you feel like you could you could give them? Wow, um, I've got several pieces. Uh, if I had to pick just one, um, you know, if, if you are working on building an AI application, um, you know, whether you're using an off-the-shelf model or fine-tuning your own, I I really do want to encourage you to uh, either, um, you know, kind of build in-house or use existing off-the-shelf tools. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel these days. Uh, evaluate your model's performance and and avoid creating or reinforcing bias, you know, un unfair bias. I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, we as 
engineers and, and product folks and entrepreneurs have to be accountable for the technology that we put out there in the world. And for that reason, you know, I do want to encourage uh, some degree of, of responsibility when it comes to launching these AI applications. So, um, you know, for that, I'd be ever grateful if, if you took away from this conversation. That's a great piece of advice. Really appreciate that. Um, if people want to, you know, contact you or they want to learn more about Eporia, maybe try it out, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can um, reach out to me at uh, Rhea, my first name, R-E-A-H dot A-I. And we go, you'll find all my info there. Okay, amazing. And uh, I will leave a link to Eporia in the comments or in the uh, in the description as well. So people will be able to find that. But Rhea, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, to the listener, thank you so much for listening to the AI Chat Podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts and have an amazing rest of your day.